Uh, The first reading is um, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, and that's on uh, page 740 of the Pew Bibles. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even infants at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule, and the altar let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Great. So now we're going to flick over to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, uh, and that's on page 899 of the Pew Bibles. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by their church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they all uh, reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human part, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay, one more reading. Um, So that's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And that's on page 840 of the Pew Bibles. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned uh, that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited invited him saw it, 
He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owned, owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has stop not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, well, over the last five weeks, we've been homing in on our values as a church. And the last two weeks in particular, we've been focusing on looking outwards. Looking outwards towards the city and towards the world. And so two weeks ago, we asked uh, and thought about what it means to be culturally literate, which is a way of speaking about how you communicate, how you, how you proclaim the message about Jesus in a way that people can understand. And then last week, we looked at its counterpart, cultural engagement, which is a way of speaking about our posture towards the world, upholding and uh, encouraging the things that are good and beautiful, and then opposing and standing against the things that are unjust or evil or which should have no place in the world. And then this week, now in our last two weeks, this week and then the following week, we are looking at uh, we're turning our attention away from looking outwards and starting to look inwards. This week we're looking at ourselves, our hearts, and then next week we look at ourselves as a Christian community. That is, they're looking at the church. And so you'll see that our value today is about grace renewal, and it goes like this. We grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ by fixing our hearts on His glory and grace, because deep change only occurs as our desire for Him reorders all the other desires of our hearts. Do you see what's going on there? Do you see what this value is about? It's about change and growth. It's our attempt as a church to answer the question, how does change happen in a person? What should we be expecting? If we want to become better people, what must we do? 
And of course, we live in a world where everybody is into one kind of self-improvement or another. It's why the coaching industry has never been bigger. Personal trainers, business coaches, life coaches. I learned just this last week that the wellness industry is now a $6 trillion industry globally. And most of that money has been spent on wellness coaches, the Instagram elite who hold out the promise that with their weekly guidance and green smoothie recipes, you too can live your best life now. Now, I mean, I'm not here to pass judgment on the wellness industry or any other self-improvement industry for that matter. What we're here to talk about is spiritual growth. What it looks like to get deep change in the life, in, in the Christian life, real deep change. And as we do that, I want to... Uh, suggest three things. Firstly, that our natural tendency is to moralistic behavior change. But secondly, if you, wanna, if you want deep change, you've got to get to the heart. And then thirdly, renewal happens when we fix our hearts on the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. Our natural tendency is to moralistic behavior change, a.k.a. try harder Christianity. I think that's what you see happening in Acts 15 that Cameron read to us just a little bit earlier. Maybe you noticed that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel to a whole bunch of non-Jewish people called Gentiles, and lots and lots of them were becoming Christians. But certain Jewish individuals, we're told in the passage that we were reading, was saying that it wasn't enough just to have faith in Jesus. If you wanted to be saved, you had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And then it says in verse 5 of that passage that these non-Jewish believers also needed to be told to observe the law, to keep the law of Moses. I put it differently, it wasn't enough just to believe in Jesus, you had to become Jewish as well. Now you have to remember that the church is still in its infancy. Up to this moment, the first followers of Jesus had been mostly Jews. And the question was, how much had Jesus' death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit really changed things? What was different now, this side of Jesus? And the apostles... In Jerusalem, they discuss this matter for a little while, and then Peter, who has this kind of head roll among the apostles, he gets up and he gives the verdict, and he gives a pretty clear answer. He says, it's no longer the case that keeping the Mosaic law with all its obligations keeps you in communion with the one true living God. It doesn't work like that anymore. No, it's grace and grace alone that reconciles us to God and ensures that we are friends with Him. And so, Peter says, it makes no sense to burden the Gentile believers with the law, especially since it had been so unbearable for Israel. This is probably a radical idea in a context where, if you were a Jewish person, you'd grown up with the belief that faithfulness to God by observing His commandments was an essential part of receiving God's ongoing blessing. But the thing is, 
if we stop and think about it for a little while, I suspect that we have these same kinds of tendencies. One way or another, we have an assumption or we fall into patterns of thinking that we need to have a performance-based way of relating to God. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he saw this. He said that religion, trying to do the right thing in order to please God and win God's approval in some way, to, to earn up merit, that that was the default mode of the human heart. That's what the heart reverted to, left on its own. Whether Christian or non-Christian, religious or secular, deep down we're all striving to make it on our own. We want to be able to justify ourselves, to put God, or if not God, other people in our debt and be able to say, look what a good person I am, look what I've done. I deserve this good life, this stable set of relationships. I deserve these answered prayers. And even if we come to Christian faith by recognizing that we're sinners with no hoping of saving ourselves, before long we can find ourselves living as if God's grace and favor is dependent on our knowledge, our generosity, our obedience, or our devotion. And I know this because that's my story. I don't know exactly the moment when I became a Christian. I uh, grew up in a Christian family. Dad's a pastor and Um, so that meant that you were sort of always in, it was always in the water, right? But uh, I do remember a moment at about five or six where I'd found out about heaven and hell and my mind was made up. Whatever hell was, I wanted no part of it. And so I asked my mum, how do you make sure you go to heaven? And in a way that was appropriate for a five or six-year-old, she said, you trust in Jesus. And so I did. And that, that was probably the earliest moment I remember of uh, getting something that was crucial to Christianity. And yet somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, as I was growing older, I managed to fall into habits of thinking that how successfully I was living the Christian life was the true judge of whether I really was saved or not that my devotion or my service or my conviction, that those were the things that if I had enough of them, that would demonstrate that really I was someone whom God had saved. See, we say to ourselves that salvation is by God's unmerited grace, but actually in the practice of life, we often think that sanctification Growth is by earnestness and effort. And in one sense, that's no surprise. We live in a world that's a meritocracy. We honor the high achievers, the straight-A students, the successful athletes, the people who build businesses from the ground up. We hear the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, and we think, yeah, that sounds biblical, right? And then are a little taken aback when the only place we find it in our Bibles is on the back of a sappy bookmark that we've wedged somewhere deep into the Old Testament. Maybe from one of those failed Old Testament Bible reading attempts. Of course, the biggest problem with this performance-driven, moralistic kind of approach to growth is that 
its motives are ultimately self-seeking. It's possible to do all the right things at a behavioral level, to be generous, to spend time in devotions, to help the poor, outdo the rest of your fellowship group in hospitality and service, and yet be primarily motivated by a desire to bolster your sense of self-worth, to be seen as a good person, or to put coins in your spiritual bank account. A famous English preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who has a great illustration that describes this, he says, imagine a farmer who grows one year the best carrot he has ever grown. That's kind of, you know, humble stuff, but he sees this amazing carrot that he's grown and he says, This is the best carrot I have ever grown and probably ever will grow. I will give it to the king as a a sign of my love and affection for him. And so he takes it to the palace and he says, King, I grow carrots. This is the best carrot I've ever grown. I wanted to give it to you as a sign of my affection and my love for you. And the king says, thank you. And the farmer goes to leave and the king discerns his heart. And just before he leaves the door, he says, wait a second. I see that you're a good farmer. Let me give you this larger piece of land so that you can continue to cultivate your crops. And the farmer is delighted. He thanks the king and he goes on his way. But there's a nobleman in the court who sees this interaction and uh, he says to himself, if that's what you can get for giving a carrot... Imagine what you can get for giving something better. So the next day, the nobleman turns up to the palace and he comes into the king with this dashing black stallion. And he says to the king, O king, I breed horses and this is the finest steed I have ever raised. I wanted to give it to you as a sign of my undying love and affection for you. And the king says thank you, discerns his heart and sends him on his way. But this time, as the nobleman is leaving, there's no call before the man gets to the door to bring him back, and the nobleman is dejected. He realizes that there's going to be no gift to him in the way that it had been given to the farmer. And the king realizes this in the moment, and he says, you see the difference between you and that farmer? He was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. And see, what can happen in our trying to be better, moralistic behavior change approach is that really the the person that we're serving is as ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves feel better. We're trying to justify ourselves to do it on our own. And when everything goes well, we feel close to God and our hearts glow with unspoken pride because we just have this sense that we're crushing it for God. And then when things go poorly, when it goes awry, we find ourselves despairing. We question our salvation or at least we're ready to give up on the expectation that we might ever change. So you can be a successful moralist or a failed moralist, 
But either way, it's going to cause you to lean away from the grace of God and to rely on your own effort, your own conviction, your own self-righteousness to get you there. And both of these approaches, successful or failing, they, they tend to rob you of joy. We need something that goes deeper than just trying harder to change. That leads us to our second point. If you want deep change, you've got to get to the heart. You've got to get to the heart because that's where the motivations lie, the underlying impulses and desires that drive our thoughts and behavior. I actually learned this lesson when, uh, some years later, I reflected back on the moment where I was able to uh, give up a habit of swearing that I had in high school. Uh, it, I was in first year university, and at the time it seemed like a, a, a huge growth, a, a, a big moment of change in my life, that I'd finally got the ascendancy of, a, of over a sin that once seemed untamable. And it's true, don't get me wrong, it's better not to swear than it is to swear, right? But the more I thought about it, the more that I realized that the underlying heart motive, the thing that was really driving my behavior hadn't actually changed that much. See, I'd used language that I was no longer proud of in high school because I'd wanted to fit in, to be approved of by my mates and considered one of the boys. And then, when I got to university, where my closest friendships quickly became other Christians, it suddenly wasn't advantageous to talk that way suddenly wasn't a way of fitting in. And because I was still being driven by the same desires to be admired and highly regarded and accepted, well, it was relatively easy to just stop. Now, as I said, better to have growth than no growth, but actually underlying it all was this same unchanged desire for approval and acceptance and And that hadn't changed even as my behavior had. The 4th century uh, Christian, African Christian Augustine realized this when he spoke of sin essentially as disordered loves. If you've been at St. John's for any length of time, you know this language. We talk about it quite often. But what it's essentially saying, what what it's trying to get at is that... Uh, What goes wrong when it comes to sin is that we get our loves out of order. We love things that we should love a little amount, a small amount, like comfort and power and achievement and approval. We love those things way too much. And we love the things that we should love much more. And in fact, the one whom we should love most of all, God, we love Him far too little. And that means that our problem isn't normally that we don't know what we should be doing, it's that we don't desire to actually live that way. We have other things that are controlling us and driving us. And the only way to fix that problem, the Bible says, is heart surgery. That's why if you read the Old Testament prophets, like the prophet Joel that we heard a little bit of before, you get this feeling, you start to wonder whether God has the same song stuck on repeat. 
Over and over and over again, he declares to his people that what he wants is not just external religious performance, not just better keeping of sacrifices. He wants their hearts. He wants their desires to be changed. What, what we need, what you and I need, is not just behavioral modification. We need change that goes deeper than that. Because our problem, our, our resistance to God, goes deeper than just our behavior. We want to make it on our own. We need heart-level change so that just as the leaves on a plant are shaped in such a way that they point towards the sun, so our desires, our hearts, longings and motivations are inclined towards God and His grace, inclined to His beauty, inclined to His glory, inclined to His light. The thing is, it's no simple task, is it? The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desires are not easy to figure out sometimes. Our true motivations can sometimes evade us. But this is where the battlefield lies. And so we need to figure out how to get to the heart. So then... uh, As we ask how this change happens, we come to point three. Renewal happens when we fix our hearts on the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. You might like to open back up to Luke 7 if you've closed that up because we're going to really spend our time on this point in this passage. In Luke 7, we get a stunning example of the contrast between Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Jesus had been invited to Simon's house for dinner and Luke notes four times in the passage that he's a Pharisee. He makes a big point of pointing this out. One of the religious elites of first century Jewish society. And while the meal's happening, a woman enters. She's heard that Jesus is eating at this Pharisee's house and she's desperate to see him. She's unnamed, although Luke points out that she was a woman of the city and a sinner. And those details have led quite a number of commentators to suggest that she was probably a prostitute. And what happens next is the definition of awkward. While Jesus is there reclining at the table, she kneels at his feet and because she's overcome with tears, she bathes his feet with her tears and wipes them dry with her hair. She kisses his feet and she puts perfumed ointment on them. And then Jesus, as if to affirm that everything this woman is doing is totally appropriate to the occasion, doesn't even blink. But Simon blinks. He can't understand what's going on. He's shocked that Jesus can allow this woman to do what she's doing. Doesn't he know that she's a sinner? Surely this disproves his claim to be a prophet. How does Jesus even know this woman? For Simon, holiness is equated with distance and this situation has straight up become a hot mess. 
and Simon, uh, um, you, you might notice how they represent two vastly different responses to Jesus. Simon is Mr. Respectability. He's squeaky clean, although Jesus has no trouble showing that his hospitality lacks the devotion of someone who has a genuine love for his guest. He looks down on the woman, which is why Jesus has to ask the pointed question in verse 44, do you see this woman? Do you see her, mate? Because for all the external veneer of togetherness and social acceptability, Simon is a man who can't appreciate the beauty of unexpected grace. He doesn't realize how desperately he also needs the Father's forgiveness. The woman, on the other hand, she's commended for her faith, which leads to such an outrageous act of devotion. Now, it's not that her sin is being uh, approved of. It's not that Jesus is saying, celebrate your autonomy and forget about living a God-honoring life. No, she's in tears. She's in tears because she hates what her sin has done to her. And then the parable Jesus makes clear that her overflowing response is because like the one who'd been forgiven the greater amount, she understands the overwhelming debt that needs forgiving. When she comes to Jesus, she brings an alabaster jar of ointment. It would have been a small flask with a long narrow neck and a tiny opening at the top and probably she wore it around her neck. The smell of the ointment that came up through this small hole would have acted as a perfume because undoubtedly in a desert culture pervaded by strong smells of sweat and animal waste, just think about it for a moment, this flask was what made the woman attractive to men. And, of course, if she was a prostitute, the implication is even more striking. This was her tool of the trade. This was the way that she won over potential clients as they passed her on the street. And in order for her to use it on Jesus' feet, she has to break it open and pour it out. It's a radical act of devotion. This woman has fixed her heart on the glory and grace of Jesus. It's the only way, the only reason she can take something so dear to her, even her very livelihood, and give it up in gratitude to Him. Maybe she's thinking, I've let men define my life. I've let physical attractiveness and sexual appeal be the things that give me value and worth. I've found security in them, even as I've felt the hollowness of them. But here is Jesus, who knows me, and who sees me as something more than this. She'd perhaps followed the crowds and heard Jesus' teaching. She'd seen him perform miracles And couldn't shake the thought that this man spoke and lived as if the very power of God was in him. And if he could offer forgiveness to all those other people. If he could give her hope that she might not need to perform for men in order to be accepted and loved. Then maybe, just maybe, it would be worth giving up everything to follow him. Do you see what had happened? 
this woman had met Jesus and she'd realized just how much she'd been forgiven, just how much she'd been loved. And in experiencing this, in feeling the full weight of God's love for her in Jesus, it had reordered the desires of her heart. The thing that seemed so valuable to her in the past didn't seem that valuable anymore. And Jesus says as much in verse 47. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. See, to the extent that you understand just how much you've been forgiven to the extent you understand just how much you've been loved by God in Jesus, that's how much you'll be able to love God rightly in response. Because she understands how great her debt is, she's able to respond to Jesus with overwhelming and overflowing devotion. Simon's problem isn't that he doesn't need forgiveness or that he's got too small a debt. No, no, he's got a huge problem of sin. He just can't see it. He's too blind to his own self-righteousness, his own self-justification. And maybe it's worth just having a little point here that if worship of God, if your response to, to God and His grace never looks like an overflow of devotion. If it never looks like a, a bubbling, abounding, abounding joy that has come because you recall what God has done for you, if it's never something that moves you or that causes just a little bit of mess in your life from time to time, then it's probably worth just reflecting, have I got this deep into my soul? Do I really get just how much I need the forgiveness of Jesus and how far he's prepared to come in order to bring me home. See, grace renewal happens when we take the things that we've been trusting in for our salvation and worth What happens when we take our alabaster flasks? Think about what that might be for you, because each of us have those things, and when we bring them into contact with the remarkable beauty and kindness of Jesus, when we see that He is better than those things that we've been following after, even those things that we attempted to turn back to in the Christian life, and we say, I'm going to break this at the feet of Jesus, because His love and mercy are worth so much more when these things that have driven and defined us at a heart level, the things that we've longed for and desired, when they come into, the, into contact with the grace of Jesus, they become less significant. Our hearts are reordered. Our desires are reordered. And perhaps, like the hymn writer we might be able to sing, Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee.
See, we grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ by fixing our hearts on His glory and grace because deep change occurs as our desire for Him reorders all the other desires of our hearts. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'll invite the musicians to come forward. So let's pray. Father, we praise you for your love for us, demonstrated so tangibly in this interaction between the sinful woman and and Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. We ask that you would give us great faith, faith to recognize just how much we need the forgiveness and kindness and grace that you offer. And that we would look to Jesus, not looking to ourselves, in order that our heart's desires might be transformed. And we pray that then we would be able to respond with great devotion, not because we're trying to earn your favor, not because we're trying to weasel our way into your kindness, but because we know that we have already received it all. And we pray it for Christ's glory. Amen.